Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, where your source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development, where we share original research, explore industry trends, and interview executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We hope you join us often for practitioner-oriented content around all things related to leadership, HR, talent management, organizational development, and change management. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Do you enjoy the Human Capital Innovations Podcast? Please subscribe, leave a review, comment, share, and consider supporting the podcast on Patreon, even at the producer and sponsorship levels. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Robert Cates about strategies and best practices for mitigating the risk of an employment lawsuit. Robert Cates, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, John. Yeah, it is a pleasure to be with you today. I'm super excited to talk with you about employment and labor law. You work with a firm in the Boston area. I'm joining everyone from South Salt Lake City in Utah. And today we're going to be talking about strategies and best practices for mitigating the risk of an employment lawsuit, really what employers should be doing proactively uh, to make sure that all their ducks are in a row and that they're staying legally compliant and, and that they're in the best situation possible if and when uh, a lawsuit ever were to arise. And I would also love to hear if you have any um, thoughts on, on some of the latest trends in employment and labor law uh, that we've seen, you know, coming out of the last couple of years in this unique time period that we found ourselves in during the pandemic. As we get started, I wanted to share Robert's bio with everybody. Robert Cates is an employment and trial lawyer who constantly strives to provide clients with excellent value through efficient, pragmatic, and solutions-oriented legal guidance. His litigation practice focuses on employment and business matters, representing clients in employment discrimination, wage, and hour claims, and close corporation disputes. He counsels employers in drafting and implementing company handbooks, restrictive covenants, and severance agreements, and also advises employees on navigating employment contracts. Uh, all very wonderful. I'm super excited to pick your brain and to hear more about um, your insights in the current context of the world of work and labor and employment law. Anything else, Robert, you would like to share with listeners by way of your background and personal context before we dive on in further? No, um, you know, I work at a firm that practices out of Boston. We're a general practice firm, and I'm on the employment and litigation teams, um, which oftentimes complement and are interrelated. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Well, why don't we start with the current lay of the land uh, in the context? What types of employment legal issues do you see most commonly? What are what are the most frequent issues that are arising day to day in this current environment? So, I, I think for a lot of people listening, um, they'll be familiar with a lot of the cases that are percolating because they really are the types of cases that get media coverage. Um, one of the um, issues, legal issues that's popping up very frequently is relating to classification of 
individuals performing services as independent contractors or employees. Um, and that's obviously taken off as, as we become more embroiled in a gig economy, um, whether it's Uber, Lyft, Instacart, um, DoorDash, Grubhub, all of those companies are based on a model where the uh, individuals performing the services are basically working their own hours. Um, and then the question is whether they're independent contractors or employees. Um, each state is different, which makes, and has different laws, which makes this a complicated issue. So I practice out of Massachusetts. And I would say Massachusetts, along with California, has the most strict um, legal standards for right. what constitutes an independent contractor versus an employee. It's a very hard standard to meet for employers. And even though it, I'm talking about it in the context of a gig economy, it's something that could impact you on a day-to-day basis. If, for example, you operate a gym, are your personal trainers independent contractors or employees? If you have a barber shop, are your barbers independent contractors or employees? So this isn't just, you know, for the billion-dollar unicorns out there. Um, it could Im- impact a small, very small business that's just a, at the corner, you know, at the corner of a street. Um, so how these issues are resolved, you know, from from the broader context, or look at looked at and considered political issues for how to deal with the gig economy, but really they have huge implications for all different types of employers. Um, so that's that's one issue that's really percolating, and really. It's 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 a political issue, and uh, in sense of there's referenda that are going out to uh, voters, and then there's also acts taken by the legislature, and then there's states that are on different sides of the spectrum, 180 degrees opposed. You know, on the laissez-faire, you know, let them contract to what they want to do. There are some states that say, look, if someone agrees to be an independent contractor, it's not our role as the government to step in and say, no, you're really an employee. On the other hand, there's there's states who take the perspective that we're here to protect our workers. We don't want our workers to be exploited. If we have independent contractors, they are not getting health insurance benefits. They might be overworked, you know, working more than 40 hours without getting overtime. So those are really the issues there about independent contractor versus employee. Um, I think if we can, if we can pause there for just a minute too, I'm curious. So I've talked to so many people about the, the, the conditions in, in California. Um, but I actually haven't really talked to anyone about Massachusetts. And so this is interesting because that's your context and you, and you framed it up as you know, Massachusetts being very similar in that way um, to California. I'm curious if, you ha- if you've had similar um, big legal cases in Massachusetts like we've seen. I, I think most people are probably at least vaguely aware of like the Uber um, gig economy case, you know, right around this very issue of contingent. Uh, workforce and, and contract workers um, and whatnot. Are you seeing similar things there in Massachusetts? Yeah, uh, uh, definitely. Um, in Massachusetts, this is a huge issue. Um, Massachusetts and California, and I think during the course of our interview, you'll hear a lot of comparisons between the two because the states are very similar. In Massachusetts, if there's a violation of its wage act, then the employee is entitled to automatic triple damages as well as attorney's fees and litigation costs, which is similar to California. And the way it plays out is that if there's an area that where there's some, where there's a little bit of gray, it's not all black and white, then the employee has a good incentive to challenge it because if they do prevail, they're going to get a significant amount of damages. Um, So I have seen it play out. Um, You know, one, one example just off the top of my mind 
is I had a client that operates um, a sporting club and they had coaches. And the question was, is, are the coaches employees or independent contractors? And what you need to do for each, no matter what the field is, whether it's, you know, gig economy or anything else, the standard is the same. There's what's known as the ABC test, which is you need to meet A, B, and C. And if you meet only two out of the three, it, this, this individual is an employee. So the, the ABC test says, does the employer control or, or exercise some direction over the services that the individual provides? The second, the B is, is the uh, services that the employee or, or the individual provides within the business of the employer? So just to give an example, because that's really a, one that's very tricky, is with regards to taxi drivers. So taxi drivers in Massachusetts challenged that they were being correctly classified as independent contractors. And they said, well, the taxi company is in the same business as, as the taxi drivers. So you, the taxi companies can't meet B. But what was held, you know, in my mind correctly, was that, well, the taxi companies aren't in the business of driving people to and from places and collecting money. The taxi companies are in the business of dispatch and leasing their vehicles to individuals to drive. So those are two separate businesses. So the taxi company makes its money when it leases the vehicle to the driver. The driver makes its money by driving people to and from. So they're in different businesses. So that's B. And then C is that the individual must be performing um, services in an independently established trade or business, which means that um, this individual can kind of go out in the marketplace and, um, uh, you know, work for multiple different entities. Um, so, for example, a personal trainer, a personal trainer can go to six different gyms in the same day and do services for them. Now, depending on how the gyms operate and what the gym's business model is, they might not meet A and B, but that's just to give you an example of someone in an independently established trade or business. So that's really the analysis that needs to be done on a case-by-case -case basis. And it's very fact-intensive. And just, just to sort of extrapolate on that, one of the reasons why drivers for Uber say that they're employees, but taxi drivers are independent contractors is because Uber does exercise some control over how they work. So the, for example, the star system, you know, how they're rated, Uber exercises some control to make sure that they follow certain protocols. A taxi company isn't going to be calling up a taxi driver and saying, well, you know, we got bad feedback about how you're doing this. The taxi company doesn't get involved in that, but Uber does. No, for good reason, of course, you know, you want Uber to take some ownership over how its drivers are conducting themselves, but that might be considered some level of control so that they wouldn't meet the prong A. And if you don't meet one of the prongs again, even if you meet the other two, even if the relationship seems like an independent contractor relationship, it's an employee under Massachusetts law and California law as well, in addition to some other states. Yeah, that's super helpful. Uh, thank you for that additional explanation and context. And yeah, this is this is messy stuff. And, and the gig economy isn't new. I mean, it's been around for forever. As long as people have worked, there's been gig, work, gig workers and and contract workers and, and whatnot, but the prevalence of it um, has only expanded, you know, in dramatic ways over the last decade or two, and certainly over the last few years, and we see that trend continuing, and I, I suspect it's even a little bit more challenging when people, so many people are working remotely, uh, where they have the, the flexibility to set their own 
schedules for work and they have a lot more autonomy in how they perform their work. I imagine just as it applies to the, the ABC test, even that, that could have implications. Uh, so all of this is super interesting. I'm, I'm also curious, you know, given this context of, of the, the most frequent types of legal issues, um, what some of the most common types of claims are uh, that seem to be coming out that you are handling the most? Well, how I, how I see sort of the types of claims that come out kind of fall within three separate buckets. And I would say that I'm seeing claims under all three buckets simultaneously. Um, the first are wage and hour claims, which are failure to pay overtime, misclassification of independent contractors, um, those types of claims, failure to pay wages that are due, including vacation time. The second is discrimination and retaliation claims um, involving someone who's, who's a member of a protected class, alleging they're subjected to disparate treatment in the workplace or an adverse employment action. And it's typically a termination or a demotion or, or something along those lines, but it could also include the creation of a hostile work environment. And I think over the last few years, particularly, you know, for example, the Me Too movement, there's been a, uh, a bit of a change in terms of how people perceive why they're being treated a certain way in the workplace and whether it relates to some sort of implicit bias against them, them due to their membership in a protected class. Um, but then also, in addition to the discrimination claims, there's also retaliation claims, which is I've, I've complained about discrimination and now you're retaliating against me. Again, it doesn't necessarily need to be a termination. It could be the uh, creation of a hostile work environment where I am being ostracized, marginalized in the workplace in retaliation for my complaints. So those, those come up a lot. The third bucket relates to disability accommodation, family and medical leave, sick time type of interference or retaliation claims. And that's particularly ripe in the um, COVID-19 world. The COVID-19 world for a lot of different reasons is totally unprecedented. But one of the ways where it's unprecedented from an employment law standpoint is who's entitled to protection for COVID-19. So one issue that I, I keep seeing is the question of whether someone who's a, who is susceptible to or a high, at a heightened risk of complications from COVID-19, is that person disabled under federal law, the Americans with Disabilities Act or state law? And under the typical framework um, of the ADA, you would say no. Um, what the ADA says is someone who's disabled is someone who has a uh, disability that causes a substantial limitation in a major life activity. So for example, um, if I you know, twist my ankle and I have to use crutches for two weeks, um, what the ADA says is that that might be transient and not something that's a disability because it's gonna heal quickly. You know, if, if I have a birth defect uh, that causes me to be unable to walk, then I'm likely disabled and there's an obligation to accommodate me. Check out my new book, The Future Leader, Creating and Transforming Next-Gen Organizations. Stemming from two decades of professional experience and over 600 in-depth interviews with executives, thought leaders, and scholars from across the globe, The Future Leader will help you explore the ordinary, everyday actions that will help you to prepare to lead in the future of work, to respond to an uncertain future, 
and to produce extraordinary results for individuals, teams, and organizations. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Academy courses, micro credentials, and certificates to upskill and reskill for the future of work. All HCI Academy courses, micro credentials, and certificates are designed, developed, and delivered by award winning and internationally renowned scholars, educators, thought leaders, executives, and practitioners. Our courses, micro credentials, and certificates will help you make your mark on the future of work and make an immediate impact in your organizations. Check out the HCI Academy and our many course offerings and certificates to upskill and reskill for the future of work. Check out our new weekly LinkedIn newsletter, Alchemizing Human Capital, exploring industry trends via original research and interviews with executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We look forward to having you join us. So the question becomes with regards to COVID-19 is, for example, someone who's over 65, someone who has asthma, someone who has any type of condition that makes them high at high risk for COVID-19 complications. How do you deal with that type of employee in the workplace? Um, is that employee considered disabled? And under the very you know, functional existing framework, you would say no, because you know, someone who has asthma that's well controlled is not going to be substantially limited in a major life activity on a day-to-day basis. Obviously, if someone has severe asthma and they, you know, can't can't breathe uh, normally, then that likely is a disability. But we're talking about the people who have conditions that are controlled and not imp- impacting their life on a day-to-day basis. So, if you have an employee who comes to you and says, "Well, I have asthma. I'm very concerned about COVID-19 exposure. I need to work from home." What is the employer's obligation there? And this is a totally new area of law, and it's something that employers are very uncomfortable with accommodating because then you you have sort of the bad president, at least from the employer standpoint, that if if someone says, um, for example, I have have asthma, I want to work from home, and they let you work from home. What about, you know, the next employee who says, look, I'm just very anxious about exposure to COVID. You know, I have a mental health condition. I've been diagnosed with anxiety and panic disorder. And to me, being exposed in the workplace, in in the physical workplace is really a a huge concern to me. You know, it's causing me panic attacks. What do you do then? Do you treat that employee who has anxiety the same as you treated the employee who has asthma where you you might've accommodated them? So it's, it's really a huge challenge. And you know, it'll probably take three to five years before employment lawyers can give you clear answers on how courts rule. I think it's going to be a mix of some decisions in favor of the employers, some decisions in favor of the employees. When an employer draws a hard line and says, I'm not going to accommodate you, you're, you're not uh, entitled to accommodation under the ADA. So these issues are, are new. They're percolating through the court system. I have a few cases <laughs> that are going through them right now. And hopefully I, hopefully my clients and I prevail, but I don't know what the answer is going to be. And I think it's going to be a a mixed bag. 
Yeah. Well, and, and how, how do we best deal with this? Obviously, case law is ever evolving. And so the, the best thing that leaders and organizations and HR teams can do is just try to stay informed, try to stay on top of developments in case law, partner with firms like yours or, or in-house teams that can can help and assist in these really um, difficult, challenging issues. Uh, but but what are some of the proactive things that firm that uh, companies can really be doing daily to prepare for the inevitability of these types of claims eventually coming about, so that they're in a, the best situation to be able to defend the organization um, in these these types of situations? Yeah, that that's a great question, and I think it really dovetails with what I would say too, which is that unfortunately the the reality of of just, you know, employment laws and, and um, having a workforce in, a, in the United States of America in 2022 means that there sometimes might be lawsuits. Sometimes they might be frivolous or lack any merit, but they, they happen. Um, so the question is how to best mitigate, mitigate against them. And really there's sort of three overarching um, sort of theories or themes that sort of I hit upon when, when counseling clients. The first is that um, you should make sure that your employees, and particularly supervisors, are, are trained in employment laws so that they don't need to be legal experts or legal scholars, but just have general understanding of what the laws are. There are so many occasions in which I'm talking to a client who has a fundamental misconception about what the law is. So just to give you an example of something that keeps on coming up is under the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is a federal wage and hour law, there is a misconception that if an employee is paid a salary, that the employee is not entitled to overtime, regardless of what the employee does. And that's incorrect. That, that's a persistent misconception, isn't it? Because, I mean, I remember learning about that when I was an undergrad student back like 20 plus years ago, about how important it is that we recognize that's not the case. Yet, I still hear all the time about misclassifications and, and people just probably w with good intention, but they're just really messing that up. And that has huge implications for organizations. Yeah, absolutely. And to tie it into sort of the current um, situation with a lot more remote work is that where there's remote work and you have a non-exempt employee, um, and I'll explain what non-exempt means in a minute. You have a non-exempt employee who's working from home, not necessarily tracking their hours, they might be working a lot of overtime and not being compensated for it. So just, just to take a step back in terms of explaining about the, the Fair Labor Standards Act, the Fair Labor Standards Act says that uh, employees who are non-exempt are entitled to time and a half for all hours worked over 40 in a work week. Now, an employee is either non-exempt or exempt based on whether they satisfy certain criteria. So an exempt employee needs to be paid a salary but that's not the only consideration. There's also what's known as a duties test that looks at the employee's primary duties to determine if they're primarily white collar type of duties. Um, so whether they're a professional, a learned professional with a, an advanced degree, or they're doing something that is um, managing a business. There are a number of those. There's not enough time in this podcast to go through all of them. But the, the, the main point is that an employee is not exempt from overtime merely because they're paid a salary. They also need to satisfy a duties test, which is very fact-intensive, needs to be looked at on a case-by-case -case basis. So 
That's one common misconception I hear. Another common misconception I hear from time to time, this one's not as prevalent, but it's, it's equally concerning as an employment lawyer, is where there's been a complaint of discrimination that lacks merit, then the employer or the person in HR thinks, you know, they haven't engaged in protected conduct. Um, we can terminate them um, and we have no risk of a claim. Even if an employee um, is wrong about a claim of discrimination, for example, if they say, um, my manager isn't promoting me because I'm female. And even if they're dead wrong about that, if they make that complaint in good faith and reasonably, then that's protected conduct. You cannot terminate an employee for doing that. Um, so that's something that's a common misconception. If there's general training on what the law provides and what the law requires, then that can clear up a lot of misconceptions. Um, I think the second um, sort of step or important process for a company is to make sure that they have their documentation in order. Um, and that's through the, through, throughout the employment relationship. So it starts with the offer letter with the employee handbook, and it goes all the way down to some sort of standard operating procedure for when an employee is terminated. So one of the things that I see in Massachusetts, again, you know, going back to that theme that Massachusetts and California are very similar, is that um, vacation time plans are not very well written or well developed, or there's all of these sort of ad hoc um, negotiations or um, side agreements with employees about how to run their vacation time. Under Massachusetts law, vacation is considered a wage. It needs to be paid um, right away for employees who are terminated. It needs to be paid on the date of termination. For those who leave voluntarily, it needs to be paid within the next regular pay period. If there's an error that is made on the calculation of vacation, then it's subject to automatic triple damages plus litigation costs plus attorney fees. So it can be a very expensive mistake to make. So, it, and, and you know, it's never, a company's never happy with paying a law firm to do this type of preventative work. But if, if you have an attorney who spends two to three hours working with you on a well-written vacation time plan that's implemented uh, intelligently and, and uniformly, then that can save huge litigation costs and a huge fight. I remember seeing a case where um, a vacation time policy did not have a cap on it. And a company's CFO was working there for 15 to 20 years. And he was basically saying, you know, I was so married to my job, I wasn't taking vacation. So when the company wasn't doing well and he was ready to leave, he said, yeah, I'm owed about uh, 10 to 12 weeks of vacation. So you have a CFO making that claim and he's, he's, he's a high, high paid individual and he's saying, I'm entitled to sixty dollars to $80,000 traveled, and plus I'm going to hire a lawyer to do that. And to avoid that type of litigation, all the company would have needed to do is consult with a lawyer earlier on to say, you need to put in a use it or lose it type cap, or do something to say that the accrual is capped at, let's say, four weeks or six weeks, and then you mitigate against that. So it's really about sometimes companies that don't... Um, engage a, a law firm are being penny wise but pound foolish because there is going to be litigation it's a reality of life that you want to be in the best position to defend yourself or to diffuse the case before um, it's been brought 
One of my colleagues always says, um, and, and she's right. She always says that once you've been sued, you've already lost. Um, you can have the best lawyer in the country represent you and win on everything and knock it out of the park. You're not going to get the time and money back that you spent on the litigation. That's just the reality. Um, the third uh, thing I recommend to, to companies, which isn't really necessarily something that you can do proactively, but I think you just need to get in the mindset as, as an employer that you're treating all employees uniformly, that each employee is treated the same. Um, because when there's favoritism or when there's exceptions made for certain employees, then that can, that can lead to, to problems um, down the line. You want to make sure you're treating all employees the same about all personnel decisions. Rather, it's decisions to hire, decisions to give raises or promote, decisions to put on performance improvement plans or discipline, and decisions to terminate. You want to make sure that all are treated the same regardless of any classification, whether it's you know a protected class such as um, gender, race, religion, age, or something trivial. Like I always use the example of clients like, don't do something stupid because you don't like my hair color. Um, there's nothing illegal about it, but it's just a bad precedent. Yeah, treat people with dignity and respect, treat them consistently. Uh, it goes a really, really long way, doesn't it? And one that I see often also is just kind of like a two-tier system of, of informal policy. So like most employees, middle management on down line employees, they kind of get treated one way. And then if you're in the C-suite or an executive, you have a different set of rules that apply to you. Um, not actually officially, not in the handbook, not in policy, but it's just kind of this look the other way, let them do whatever they want kind of a thing. I see that so often. And that, of course, does all sorts of negative things to erode trust and to open yourself up to potential litigation. Right. And, and, and to that point, John, it's not just necessarily about that you've done something illegal or violated any laws as much as you might have created that perception in an employee's mind. So when the employee feels like they've been treated unfairly, they're going to go to a lawyer and they're going to pursue a claim. Whereas if they feel like, you know, things didn't work out or, you know, this was just not the right opportunity, you know, but the company treated me the same way as treated everyone else. There's less of that feeling that they were treated unlawfully and that they should go to a lawyer to consult with someone and potentially pursue a claim. Um, you know, Employment claims are very hard to prove, uh, particularly discrimination and retaliation claims, but they're not going away. And they're going to keep on um, popping up. And even the best run companies are going to be impacted by them. But in terms of mitigating against the risk, it's really making sure that your employees, particularly your supervisors, are well trained on the law, making sure that, that everything is documented and well put in order. And then just making sure that there's an overall ethos at the company, that everyone is treated the same with dignity and fairly, of course, but that there's no favoritism. There's no two-tiered system for employees. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Well, Robert, this has just been a really great conversation. I know at the time we could go on and on and on. Like you said, I mean, we, we could take hours and hours and hours to talk about all these issues, but uh, I'm going to need to let you go and uh, so you can get back to your busy day. Before we close for today, though, I just wanted to give you a chance to share with listeners how they can connect with you and find out more about your work, uh, your firm, and then give us a final word on the topic for today. Sure. Um, well, thanks, John, for having me. It's been, it's been great to chat with you. Um, I appreciate it. Um, 
You can reach me. Um, my email address is R-K-A-I-T-Z, so the first initial last name, at davismalm, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M.com. And my law firm's website is www.davismalm.com. Uh, we operate out of the Boston area and, you know, we represent clients around New England and sometimes nationally as well. Um, but I'm always happy to talk uh, an employment law issue, hash, hash things out. I'd like to think I'm not too expensive and can work fairly efficiently to resolve any problems. And certainly my goal is to, and, and part of what's fulfilling for me is to prevent litigation rather than be mired in litigation. I think it's very hard for companies to achieve their business objectives through litigation. The best way to do it is to take whatever steps you can to a reasonable steps, of course, to mitigate litigation. Thank you, Robert. It's been a pleasure. I encourage listeners to reach out, get connected, find out more about Robert, what his team can do to help you. And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week. Bluer Than Indigo Leadership, the journey of becoming a truly remarkable leader. Early in my adult life, I learned about an Asian proverb that translates as bluer than indigo. If you think about the color indigo, it is a brilliant, deep, and vibrant blue, what some would call the bluest of blues. To have something that is bluer than indigo is rare and truly remarkable. Contrary to popular myth, there is no one-size-fits-all or cookie-cutter approach to effective leadership. There is no silver bullet, no secret sauce, no go-to model that will solve all of your problems. The truth is, great leaders have all had their unique strengths and flaws and have all had to discover and then pave their own distinctive path in their life's journey to fulfill their leadership potential. Bluer Than Indigo Leadership will help you discover your own path and explore those ordinary, everyday actions that will help you respond to an uncertain future and produce extraordinary results for individuals, teams, and organizations. Check out Human Capital Innovations magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free, interactive e-magazine with the mission to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We publish issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Take a look at the latest issue and let us know what you think. alchemy of truly remarkable leadership, ordinary everyday actions that produce extraordinary results. Consider how the nature of work has shifted over the past 50 years with increased globalization, rapid technological advancement, and the shift in economic composition. The average job of today looks very different than the average job of 50 years ago. What will the jobs and organizations of tomorrow look like? Moreover, what does this all mean for organizational leaders? What are the core competencies and capabilities of organizations and their leadership that are prepared for continued disruption and geopolitical and socioeconomic shifts? Regardless of what the future holds, increasingly, leaders need to be socially minded, data-driven, decisive, champions of talent, and disruptors of the traditional notions of leadership, teams, organizations, and work. The alchemy of truly remarkable leadership 
will help you to explore your own leadership competencies and capabilities and consider ways to apply and implement them into your workplace and personal life. Do you enjoy the Human Capital Innovations Podcast? Please subscribe, leave a review, comment, share, and consider supporting the podcast on Patreon, even at the producer and sponsorship levels. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.